If you have uh, your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. We're continuing our journey uh, through 1 Corinthians. And I want to uh, thank Jared and Kevin as they filled in for me the past two weeks. Uh, but man, they let me come back on a real, um, real challenging one today in 1 Corinthians 11. If you've ever read spent any time reading it, you've most likely walked away from your Bible reading wondering, what on earth is Paul talking about here? What does this even mean? Why is this relevant for me today? And how is this even practical in our culture today? And these are all valid questions as we read 1 Corinthians 11. And we need to come to this conclusion today up front that we're probably going to leave here with more questions than answers. One of the deepest desires we all have, I believe, when we open up our Bible is to walk away with this understanding, this feeling that we feel closer to God or God's presence was really near to us as we read the scriptures. And sometimes that's not always the case because scripture is meant for us to chew on. It's like a diamond. If you hold it up to the light and you turn it, you can see all of its reflections and the diamond refracting in the light to see all of its beauty, its mystery to delight in, to meditate on. The Bible is a similar thing. It's like a diamond that we hold up to the light to examine it, to meditate on, to see all of its beauty and mystery. So as we approach today's text... Uh, To do this today, there's two things that we need to understand as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The first thing is this. Scholars have called 1 Corinthians chapter 11 one of the most, if not the most, challenging uh, passage of Scripture to interpret and to understand. So it would be a poor expectation for us to assume that we can knock this out in a 30-minute sermon. I mean, just look at verse 10 if you have your Bible open. I don't think I'll have it on, I don't have it on the screen, but verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Because of the angels? I mean, where did this come from? This is the first time that Paul has mentioned the angels in this letter. Is this something that Paul is responding to in their first letter? Maybe is this something that he's talking about in a uh, sermon that he had with them? So it would be, it'd be silly for us to walk away from this passage and say, ah, oh, yes, I completely understand what Paul means by the angels here and having authority of, over a woman's head. So our goal here today is not perfect understanding. Our goal is to chew on this, to hold it to the light, to think on it, to meditate on it, to see it. The second is that as we read this passage, it may land on us in an odd way. As we read this text, we might have different reactions to it. Just look at verse 3 in chapter 11. It says this, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, here's the deal. We don't have to, to hide around this. People have accused the Bible of a lot of things. People have called the Bible oppressive, misogynistic, offensive, wrong, you name it. And this is a passage of Scripture that has 
been used by abusers to silence their accusers. It's been used as a weapon to belittle, malign, push over, push others into a corner. And if you've been raised in a home or a church that used texts like this in these ways, it's potential that all of these feelings will come up. If you've had a husband or a pastor or you know someone that has used these texts to push women in a corner, to silence them, this can make us feel all certain sorts of ways. Diane Lamberg, a Christian psychologist, says this, spiritual abuse is the use of scripture and spiritual language and principles to control, humiliate, demean, and silence another person. If you've experienced something like this, abuse by taking scripture out of context, this person, that person is breaking the third commandment. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. And so as we read this passage, I I know, I understand uh, that it could cause some different feelings among us. Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you've not spent any time in the word. Maybe you've not read this passage in a while. And when you read it, it might sound funny. So how are we going to answer these questions that we have. We're going to approach the text in three ways this morning. We're going to ask, why is this important? Making sense of head coverings in the church, why is this important? The second thing we're going to attempt to do is, what can we clearly see in the text? And then third, we're going to attempt to land the plane about how should we apply it to our lives today. Why is this text important? What can we clearly see and how will we apply it in our lives today? So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. It will be on the screen. It says this, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man not ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, is it a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice nor do the churches of God. Tough passage. A lot of questions. So the first thing that we want to do this morning is ask this. Why is this important? 
Why is this even important for us to wrestle with? Why should we attempt to handle this passage well? Why not just push it to the side because it's hard to understand and move on? The first reason that this is important is this. is because we can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why wrestle with this passage? Because it is handed down from a good God for our good. So, in a way, this passage is for our good. And we can trust the Bible because it's God's Word. But you might ask yourself, wait, well, I don't really know if I trust the Bible. There are a lot of different holy books out there. Why trust the Bible? Let me just consider this for a moment. The Bible contains 66 books written by over 40 different authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years. The scriptures, according to Jesus, and as you read it, consists of multiple stories of an all-powerful, loving, and generous God making men and women in his image, the rebellion of man against God's good design, and the love of God that propels him to restore all things by becoming man, being killed, and resurrected because of his love and mercy. In other words, these 66 books written by 40 different authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years, it all intersects in one story in Jesus, who is God, who upholds things by the word of his power. Consider this. If we were to attempt to write down a reflection on what it means to be man, to have God, and we were to pull 40 people in this room, we'd all come to different conclusions. We'd all write different things. But the scriptures are internally consistent. 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, it's not just remarkable It's supernatural how this comes together. And you might say, well, ah, that's just your holy book. What about another holy book? Well, let's take another holy book to some. The Quran, for instance, is a holy book for the Muslims. The Quran was not written by 40 authors in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years. The Quran was written by one man named Muhammad, who was illiterate. One man, Muhammad, who was illiterate who had visions and spoke them to his followers. Now get this. They did not write his revelations down until after he died. And when they started writing them down, there were so many discrepancies that one man took all of these collections, or or one man burned all of the collections and wrote his one collection down. It's not 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years and 66 books. It's one man over the course of one year where there's multiple discrepancies in the scripture or in their scripture. It's not scripture. It is not the word of God. To compare the Quran to the Bible, it is no comparison. The Bible is supernatural in its work. Not only that, not only is there internal consistency in the Bible, you might remember a few years ago when we did our sermon series on how we got the Bible, the manuscript reliability is incredible. Uh, it is no question with the manuscripts that we have found that the Bible is the most historically verified ancient document. We have over 5,000 manuscripts from the New Testament. 5,000 that we found, all written 
by potentially different people as it's been copied, and there have been no major errors or discrepancies between them. They all tell the same stories in the Gospels and in the letters written to the church. Not only do we have that, we have the Masoretic and the Septuagint texts of the Old Testament, which means this, in our hands today, we can confidently say we are reading the same scriptures in the Old Testament that Jesus would have read. We can confidently say that the same scriptures that they would have recited in synagogue that Jesus would have heard, we have in our hands today. Isn't that incredible? Not only do we have those texts, over the last, in the last 100 years, we have found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are date all the way back to 200 to 100 B.C., and we're able to take those Dead Sea Scrolls and cross-reference them to the Masoretic and the Septuagint texts, which mean this, they are reliable. It's incredible what we have been able to find in the, the ancient documents that is preserved over history. We have manuscript reliability. Not only that, we have fulfilled prophecy. The Bible contains thousands of prophecies fulfilled with uncanny precision, including 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament written over hundreds of years that are detailing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's incredible. That hundreds of years before Jesus became flesh and walked on the earth and was killed and crucified, over 300 prophecies are fulfilling that to exact detail. Do you know the odds of that happening are one in 2,000 zeros? And I just wanted to give you an instance of what that might look like. That's only 50 zeros there. The likelihood of that happening is one in 2,000 zeros. We have manuscript reliability. We have fulfilled prophecy. We have internal consistency. But what else do we have is eyewitness testimony. You believe the men that will die for it. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is one that's not really written in the Bible. You kind of have to read between the lines to catch. And it's the story of Jesus' brother, James. You know, this James, the one in John chapter 7, who doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And he knows that people want Jesus to be killed. So Jesus' brother, James, he confronts Jesus and he says this, No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5, For his own brothers did not believe in him. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. But we see just a few years later, James is going to write this in his letter to the church, where he says this, James, a servant of God, and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. How can he say that? How can he go from wanting to see his brother dead to proclaiming, this is me, James, a servant of God, and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. How can he do this confidently? Because he saw the resurrected Messiah. He saw Jesus resurrected, and it changed everything. So when we come to a text like this in 1 Corinthians, and it strikes us funny, we don't like the way that it lands on us, we can come to it with humility and know that God has good intentions for us because we can look at the scriptures and we can know that he is Lord. We can know that his word is good for us. Sunday after Sunday, we open up a book 
and read the inspired words of God to us and for us. Why is this important? Because it's the scriptures for us. So the second question as we approach this text today is what can we see in the text? Are there things that we can confidently say? Are there things that sound confusing like the angels, we really don't know what's happening there? Or even in verse 2 where Paul says, uh, you've passed down the traditions, you're holding on to the traditions that I passed down to you. We're not sure, scholars aren't sure what traditions Paul's referring to. So what can we look at in the text and confidently say? Let's look at verse 3. We can confidently say this. In verse 3 it says this. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. Another translation, your translation might say husband, and that's probably a better translation. And the head of Christ is God. Is Paul saying, here's a question for us this morning. Is Paul saying that men and women have different value or worth? Is Paul saying that men and women, they, their values are different? Absolutely not. And we see this consistently through Scripture. And especially in the culture of the Gospels and the letters in the New Testament has an incredibly high view of women in a patriarchal culture and society. Consider the example he gives with God being the head of Christ. Does God have more value or worth than Jesus? No. We believe that God is Trinity, that Jesus is equally God, that by the word of his power, Jesus, the word, he upholds everything. So Paul is not saying that men and women have different value. It's not a statement of worth, but rather a statement of role. You see, the Father, he sends the Son. The Son does the will of the Father. Everything the Father says, I do, Jesus will say. Paul here, I believe, is speaking to the role of man and the role of woman. And what does he say the role of man is? It's to be the head. Now, what does it mean for a man to be the head of his wife? Do we have any other scriptures that could clarify this for us? We absolutely do in Ephesians 5. Flip over to Ephesians 5. We'll be in Ephesians 5, verse 22. We'll read down to uh, verse 28. Working with this question, what does it mean for a husband to be the head of his wife? Starting in verse 22, it says this. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. What does it mean to be the head of your wife? What does it mean for Wives to have the head, it means that your husband should be consistently laying down his life for you, should be loving you with the love and reflection of Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be the head. It doesn't mean to be domineering and authoritative and you do what I say and you listen when I speak and you stop talking when I speak. It doesn't mean, that's not what it means to be the head at all. In fact, if you were, husbands, if you were to do this, you would be doing the opposite of what Scripture commands you to do. 
You're to lay down your life for your spouse, to love them as Christ Jesus has loved the church. And this is a wonderfully beautiful thing that God has given men and women to serve in different roles in the home. So what can we see from this text? We can see absolutely clearly that the value of man and woman in the kingdom of God, they have equal value and worth in the kingdom. Men and women have equal value and worth in the kingdom of God. Both men and women were created in the image of God. The second thing that we can see from this text very clearly is that there are different roles for women and men in the church and in life, and these differences should be celebrated. You see, remember what's happening in the church at Corinth is that they have all of these different cultures and they're all coming together and they're trying to figure out how to follow Christ together and it's all getting muddied up. They don't understand what's happening. And so Paul speaks against them by living in their human wisdom. Paul speaks against them because they're blurring the lines of sexual mispractice. They are celebrating a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul says the pagans wouldn't even tolerate this. They're participating in former practices that would destroy another brother, and now it would appear that in their church gathering, they are blurring the roles of men and women in the church. Women uncovering their head, men covering their head, women who are trying to assume the tradition and practices of the men in the church, and men who are trying to assume the tradition and practices of women in the church. And Paul says, this is shameful. So how did they get here? Uh, we don't know. But it might be one potential is this. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. I have it on the screen here. This is another one of Paul's teaching to the church in Galatian, Galatia. And he says this. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So you can see that potentially the Corinthians might be operating with this teaching from Paul to say, okay, wait, we're all one in Christ Jesus, but is Paul making a statement to roll here? No, he's making a statement to value. That there is no longer a separation. The slave man and the free man have equal value in Christ Jesus. The woman and the man have equal value in Christ Jesus. The Jews who despised the Gentiles, Paul is saying, even the Gentiles have equal value and worth in Christ Jesus. You are now one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is not saying here is to blur the lines. So it's not a stretch here to take what Paul has said, that there are no longer men and women, and people in the church are maybe taking this teaching and they're starting to blur the roles because they feel like there is one. So what can we learn from this? Equal value and worth, there are different roles that should be celebrated, and the created distinction between man and woman should be evident in the church. We live in a world of, uh, people are calling it uh, gender confusion. Um, uh, I don't even know the other terms that they're putting on this. But the church is a place where we should not forsake our gender-given identities. Gender identity where men and women seek to reject their specific sexual identities is not a sign of maturity. But in our culture, it's celebrated as one. 
We will ask children, what do you identify as? And whatever they say, we think it's like this enlightened state by them. For someone who has found themselves to say, I am no longer a man, but I'm, I'm a woman inside of a man's body, or I'm a man inside of a woman's body, we'll say, they must be really enlightened. They must be really in tune with who they are. But this is not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity in Christ will lead us to become mature men and women in Christ. That we will not blur the identities that God has given us. We will not blur these distinctions. The value and worth of men and women should be celebrated in the church. There are particular Christian traditions that have limited the role of women in the church to the point where they have no role. You may have been raised in a tradition, uh, a very, um, in a, a different church, where when my mom came up and did the scripture reading today, that might have sat funny with you, because women should not be speaking in the church. You might have grown up in a tradition in that way. But what does Paul say here in the text? That women in the church are to pray and prophesy in the church. So if, you, if, if it's funny for us, which it can be, and that's fine if it's funny for you, we should ask ourselves, why does this sit funny with us? Is it because of the way that we were raised, our culture, our upbringing, or is it something from the text that we see? So how does this practically play out in our lives of celebrating these different roles and distinctions by giving, giving uh, the women in our church responsibility? How does that play out. There are several ways, I think, but I'm going to list just one very specific way. The function and role of our church does not happen between the hours of 9.15 and 11.30. When we gather here at 9.15 and 11.30, this is not like when we turn on church and then when we leave, we've turned off church. The role of the believer is to be the priesthood of the believer, and that means at every moment of every day, as you identify in Christ Jesus, you are serving. So the question would be, um, let's say that we have a new mother here that has just had a child and maybe she's uh, struggling with nursing or maybe she is dealing, working through some postpartum depression um, and she needs encouragement from the church. Who would it be more appropriate to go and speak privately to pray over in their life, would it be more appropriate for me to go? Or would it be more appropriate for my wife, Jessica, to go? Jessica, like hands down, it, it, that is a no-brainer. And this is the role that women, this is one role that women have in the church, to be the priesthood of the believer, to go and extend the love and grace and mercy of Christ Jesus, to walk through pain and struggle and joy and strife, whatever it is, Women have a respected and honored role in the church. To say that Paul is saying otherwise is to misread and abuse the text. So the question then for us might be, well, should we require women to cover their heads today and for men to have their heads uncovered? Now, we have identified throughout our series in Corinthians that there are several cultural practices that haven't uh, become relevant for us today. The truth within them con is contained. The truth is relevant, but the practice is not. And this might sound funny to say that 
There are specific practices in the church at Corinth that aren't relevant for us today, but the truth is relevant. Let me just give you an example of some other ones. I'll just give you my favorite example. Four times in Paul's letters, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives the command that when we gather together, we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, is that a practice that we have today? No. Like, Vic, man, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to greet you with a holy kiss, and I think you're going to be okay with it. But the truth that's contained within the Scripture is this, that we are to greet one another warmly, affectionately, with joy. That's the truth that's contained. So today, for us, should women wear head coverings or not? If you're a woman here, you might choose to wear a head covering, and that's fine. But the truth that's contained in these passages is that we are not to blur the lines of gender in the church, and we're not to blur the lines of role and function in the church. Paul, in his letter, is clear um, that within our church, uh, that there are different roles in that we serve. For example, uh, women have a role in the church here at Alpine. At Alpine, we believe that women have a role. At Alpine, we also believe that there are certain pastoral roles and functions that the Lord has ordained for men, elder, pastor, overseer. However, there are traditions that have severely limited the role of women in the church. What we seek to do at Alpine is to state what the scriptures have clearly stated for us. There are offices and functions that the Lord has ordained for men to serve in that role, and there are offices and functions that are more appropriate for women to serve in that role. And that's a good gift from God. You see, from the beginning of Scripture, if you go all the way back to Genesis, and you open it up, God has created everything good, but when he created man, what did he say? It's not good for man to be alone. So you have a single man, and what does he do? He causes Adam to fall in a deep sleep, and from Adam's side, he creates woman. So two distinct individuals, so that they may what? Become one again. Scripture tells us that man and woman should leave their mother and their father so that they might become one flesh. As we come together, men and women, we should celebrate our different identities, our different gender identities in the church, because God is making us one to serve one function in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul is speaking to in the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. So what are the main takeaways that we can take from today? We can trust that the Bible, we can trust the Bible to be good and valuable for our lives because it's the word of God. This means that even in hard passages, we can trust that it is for our good because God is good. We can trust that hard scriptures are for our good because God is good. Second, the Lord has given each of us purpose and value in our gender. It is a part of his good creation. Blurring these lines is sinful and harmful to the community. Third, we can clearly see here where Paul is encouraging women to actively participate within the church, to pray and prophesy within the church. And that while men and women have different functions and roles, our value, our value is in the fact that we are all the Lord's. 
We are one in Christ Jesus. So as we close our services this morning, I want to ask you this question. What has the Lord called you to in service here at Alpine? How can you participate in the good work that the Lord has called us to here? Part of that is within your marriages. For husbands, that you lay down your life for your spouse. That you lovingly serve them. This is what it means to be the head. That wives, Scripture calls us, Scripture calls you to submit to your husband's loving leadership in the home. That as he lovingly serves you, that you encourage, respect, and honor him. And that as you both do these roles, you're becoming one. And it proclaims uh, the good gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what? That he sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you, if you come to him in faith, he stands for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray um, that as we look at this text today and as we might still leave with a lot of questions um, and things that might not make sense for us, that we can trust, we can, we can trust, Father, that you are good and you are for our good. Help us to trust that. Father, help us to delight in the wonder and the mystery and the supernatural authenticity of your word. Help that to be an encouragement to us that we can stand confidently in your designed word that you've handed down to us. Help us to delight in your word, to meditate on it, to hold it up in the light and to see all of its beauty that we hide your word in our heart. Father, I pray that today that you can search us and know us so that we can see that you love us. Help us to understand, Father, that deep love that you have for us. And Father, if there's anyone here today that has not come to you in faith, Father, I pray that you call them to yourself so that as they come to you in faith, they can believe and trust that you are for us. And because you live, we too shall live. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.